Rajim, Rahman, Rahim. In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, Assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And uh, welcome once again to our series, Life, the Islamic Answer. As you remember, inshallah, we finished until now uh, explaining the importance of knowledge, the importance of reason, aql. And we also explained that the only alternative to these is a notion of jahl. There is no neutral alternative. Um, we are not entirely done discussing the notion of jahl. Uh, we are done uh, providing an overview so that as we proceed, inshallah, you will keep it in mind and refer back to it. Uh, some of the most important uh, highlights from the notion of jahl, uh, inshallah, are clear uh, and that you keep in mind include the fact that, as we said, jahl does not translate into the lack of knowledge, uh, it also has another dimension. In fact, this is a, a very uh, important point to notice when you go through the narrations of Ahlul Bayt and the books, the big compilations of Ahadith, you will see that our scholars, when they put these books together, when they compiled the narrations, when they ordered and structured the narrations, they did not refer to the topics that we talked about. They did not call them ilm and jahl. The opposition was not between ilm and jahl. The opposition is between aql and jahl. And so you see jahl being presented as the uh, opposite or the alternative to aql. So jahl is not necessarily a lack of knowledge. That is one part, one dimension, one aspect of jahl. And we talked about that. The other one uh, is uh, a lack of rationality, of reason, of using your uh, rational faculties fully. In fact, we want to go a step further than that. We're not ready to do so yet, inshallah, as we go through the narrations, uh, this will become clear and we will spend a little bit of time on this much later in the series. But we will see that in Islam, the notion of jahl is not only linked to things that are uh, lacking. It's not only a lack. You know when you say, for instance, uh, jahl as a lack of, uh, it's basically a non-existence, right? Something that is non-existent, we refer to it as jahl. So a lack of aql or a lack of knowledge. What will become clear, inshallah, as we go through this series, starting today, is that this is not necessarily the case. You may actually have something and the majority of the people when they look at it they will say that this is a aql or this is a ilm this is knowledge this is reason but based on the criteria that we will present you will see that islamically this would still be considered jahl and so there's a th this is a, a slightly more nuanced or more uh, sophisticated or deeper look into these notions to see that something that actually exists is still being referred to as jahl. And so there, this is part of the bridge that hopefully we can, uh, you know, we, we can keep in mind between the topics that we presented and where we're going.
Okay, so inshallah, uh, all of these are uh, going to be kind of fresh in your mind as we go through uh, the series. So, uh, and I think it's helpful also to understand a little bit of the map that we have in mind. So as we said, we understand uh, the importance of aql, the importance of ilm, and that the only alternative is jahl. What we want to do now is to say, okay, so now what? So the now what, there's two ways to look at what we're going to try to do starting today. On the one side, we want to talk about this journey of knowledge that we want to have. So now that we understand the importance of ilm, the crucial importance of ilm for our own value and merit and worth in this world and the next and so on and so forth, we want to start on this journey of ilm to acquire knowledge. And so we want to start from the very beginning before we jump into acquiring knowledge. Is there something that we should keep in mind so that when we do it, we are entering this field from the right gate in the right way? What are the things that we have to keep in mind so that our journey starts off being on the right path right from the beginning? So this is part, this is one half of our purpose that we, we want to start today, okay? So that our journey begins from the right point. If you're missing the, 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 the way, if the path is not clear, as we saw in the hadith, then your entire journey may be bringing you somewhere that is uh, absolutely not where you were intended to go. The second component to this is a question that we actually discussed a number of times uh, as we were going through ilm and aql. As, we, as it was becoming clearer and clearer to us this importance of ilm, many of us, I think, started to go, at least in our minds, into, okay, I want to move into action now. Just tell me which knowledge do I acquire? Which type of aql so that I can go get it? Right? And so I can start on this journey. So one half of it is the steps. We talked about that. The other one is that we want to understand which types of knowledge. So I'm going to open a little bracket here and tell you we are going to dedicate a topic once this, this part is done, inshallah, the next topic is going to be the types and kinds of knowledge. And after that, the sources of knowledge. But before we talk about that, there's something that we need to keep in mind and something that we need to understand before we start explaining these different types and kinds of knowledge that we can acquire and that Islam has emphasized. Islam has said these are very important. But before that, we need to understand that more important than the type of knowledge, there's a condition that has to be met for this information to be considered knowledge in the first place in Islam. And so this is what we want to start today. And this is that you do it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's in short. That's if we want to summarize everything that we're going to be saying, it comes down to when I acquire the knowledge, which intention is driving me to acquire this knowledge? Why am I pursuing this knowledge? Why am I going after this knowledge? In short, it needs to be for God. Before I talk about what type of knowledge am I looking at, history or math or biology or religion, I need to ask the question, but is it for God? Am I acquiring this knowledge for God or not? This is going to answer the next question a lot more than looking at the type of information, which discipline it falls into.
Okay, so inshallah, this part is clear. Now, when we say for the sake of God, and you will see that today in a number of narrations, and we will continue that the next time that we meet, inshallah, when we say it's, it's, to, uh, it's for the sake of God, this can also be interpreted or presented as liwajhillah, for the sake of God. It could be to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I do it to please Allah. It could also be that I act in this world or I act for the next world. And inshallah, the next uh, subtopic, because this topic is about knowledge and action, right? That's how, how we introduced it last time we met. But before I jump into action, I need to understand intention. So as we will go through the hadith, please notice how there is going to be an emphasis on yes there is the intention but part of the intention is to act but again to act for the sake of God sometimes it's mentioned sometimes it's not mentioned it's implied so that I don't have to repeat it for every hadith I say it now the bottom line is the bottom line is that if my intent behind acquiring the knowledge is for the sake of God is to act for Allah to obey Allah, to please Allah, or to act for the afterlife, or to act simply, all of this is, is the same intention. But then we can break it down into these. And then we will, inshallah, break it down to see what does it mean. When we apply this notion of once you have knowledge, you must act on it, we are going to apply this notion to knowledge itself. What does that mean? It means that the first step of knowledge is that you act on the knowledge you have. It comes with a duty. And that duty will include you acquiring the knowledge, you becoming a scholar, having enough knowledge so that you can share it to others, and you contributing to an environment of knowledge. And I'm going to summarize all of that and say there's a duty to create a knowledge community or a knowledge society which is what we've been talking about since the beginning of the series so this is kind of the map of the next few uh, lectures inshallah we're starting today from the intention behind the knowledge once I move towards knowledge what intention has to motivate it so that it is considered Islamic and then from there we will go into action what does action mean and the importance of always knowledge leading to action, action for the sake of God, which was which we're presenting today. So that's kind of the mapping. Inshallah, this part is clear, and uh, and uh, you keep it in mind as we go through the next few uh, lectures. Inshallah. The first hadith that we want to look at uh, comes to us from Imam Sadiq salam, in which he says, "Man ta'allama lillah." وَعَمِلَ لِلَّهِ وَعَلَّمَ لِلَّهِ دُعِيَ فِي مَلَكُوتِ السَّمَاوَاتِ عَظِيمًا فَقِيلَ تَعَلَّمَ لِلَّهِ وَعَمِلَ لِلَّهِ وَعَلَّمَ لِلَّهِ So, مَنْ تَعَلَّمَ لِلَّهِ So, whoever is going to learn knowledge, to acquire knowledge, تَعَلَّمَ for the sake of God. And then, and then he acted for the sake of God based on the knowledge he got. And then, and then he 
teaches that knowledge. And please notice the sequencing, the order here. You learn, then you act, then you teach. He will be called, he will be categorized, considered in the kingdom of the heavens, Azima. He will be considered great in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because فَقِيلَ تَعَلَّمَ لِلَّهُ وَعَمِلَ لِلَّهُ وَعَلَّمَ لِلَّهُ What is there to really notice about this hadith? First of all, the importance of the intention. It's not مَنْ تَعَلَّمْ As much as we emphasized the importance, the sacredness of knowledge from the beginning, now we're starting to see that it's not just learning, it's learning for the sake of Allah. مَنْ تَعَلَّمَ لِلَّهُ Okay, that's one. So, the importance of sincerity and intention. The second point is that this is the link that we made with when we talked about both aql and ilm. We said this is your true merit, your true value as a human being. And this is where you see it here. In the kingdom of heavens, in the kingdom, this is maybe not what people see. But in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the eyes of the angels, your true worth, that may not be the case in this world, but that is your true worth, and it will appear in the afterlife, you, were, you are going to be labeled great. This is a great human being. This is not an ordinary human being, because they have done these three things. The next point related to this hadith is that you saw that it is not enough to know. It's not that simply because you have learned for the sake of God that you are labeled great in the heavens of, in the kingdom of the heavens. It is that you have done all of it. And so this is where you see the duty. There's something implied in knowledge that has to make you go all the way. You perform the entire cycle. You learn, you act upon your knowledge, and then you share that knowledge with others so that the cycle repeats and expands and multiplies and this is how change happens we'll come back to that the idea of the action inshallah we're gonna spend a lot more time on it later we're gonna dedicate lectures to talk about action and the idea of teaching inshallah will also be looked at in depth this movement towards from learner who is a learner what are the characteristics? What's expected of you as a learner of knowledge? And then what, are, what is expected of you? What are the characteristics of the teacher so that you can find them? And then what, what are the duties now that you have become the scholar and the teacher and you have something to share? What are the duties and responsibilities associated with now carrying that knowledge? And there's something here that I simply wanted to highlight to you. I don't know if we'll have time to cover it today. This type of wording, fi malakut samawat is something to keep in mind. Oftentimes, it means that this was revealed to previous prophets. This malakut samawat in fact, inshallah, we'll come back to it. You find it a lot in the Bible, the kingdom of the heavens. Isa salam talks about this, and in many of our narrations, this is one narration. The wording of this narration is repeated in many, many narrations that have similar wording, similar notions. I chose this one from Imam Sadiq In other ones, we are explicitly told 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to Isa or it is written in the scripts of previous prophets or Allah has revealed to certain prophets and some of them are mentioned Prophet Daniel alayhi salam, Prophet Isa alayhi salam and others. So there's a link here and inshallah also a point I'm not going to stress on too much now but something to keep in mind I think that the more we realize that the, the knowledge that we're getting from Ahlul Bayt from the Prophet is the same knowledge that was revealed to previous Prophets, the more I think it becomes special and sacred to us. You understand that it's part of a chain, that you are part of a tradition, that this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed to humanity again and again. And if it weren't for these people, this would be cut off. You would not have access to it. This is part of the blessing of having these people that basically connect you to the divine chain of prophethood through these ahadith. How would you know that this was revealed? How would you know that? And I have the Bible here with me in case I have time to read some passages. How would you know where to look when you know there's so much distortion in it? Well, here you have hints that basically tell you if you find something of that type, then you know that there's leftovers of truth there. And you can go seek them out and find them. But if you didn't have these, how would you know? You would have to go through it and based on reason, kind of guess and hope that you know, you're hitting the mark, but you have no way of knowing. When you have this direct chain from a prophet or from an imam directly that tells you this was revealed to pro previous prophets, and then you find it, you say, okay, so here's the part that we can safely rely on. It's the same exact notion that we have in our religion. And I think this goes a long way, especially for people living in the West, people living as minorities. In any case, inshallah, uh, all of these are points that we can talk about uh, further. The second hadith from the Holy Prophet Allah. So the scholar or the person who has the knowledge, if uh, he seeks the sake of God through this knowledge إِذَا أَرَادَ بِهِ وَجْهَ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى هَابَهُ كُلُّ شَيْءٍ Everything will revere that scholar, will revere, will fear that person who is carrying that knowledge. وَإِذَا أَرَادَ أَنْ يَكْنِزَ بِهِ الْكُنُوزِ هَابَ مِنْ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ So if the person who is carrying the knowledge is doing it, seeking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then everything will fear that scholar. But if the intent of this person is to amass and pile wealth or treasures, that person is going to be fearful of everything. That person is going to constantly live in a state of revering or respecting or obeying or being enslaved to everything okay again i think here we see very clearly the importance of the intent why are you acquiring the knowledge that part inshallah is clear a second point i think that is very important here and we've talked about it and here you see it perhaps indirectly the link between knowledge and power. Usually, those who carry knowledge may realize to what extent they now carry power. 
In a lot of cases, those who carry the knowledge, however, are not the ones who want to directly harm anyone with that knowledge. Sometimes they do, but usually they don't. Because they are usually people of knowledge. However, they're also interested in amassing wealth, as the hadith says. They're also interested in this world. So what happens? They become people who are at the service of those who want to use that knowledge to control others, to oppress others, to do with others as they wish. But they wouldn't be able to do it without that knowledge. And that's when you see that person carrying the knowledge come into, fall under the service of a tyrant, an oppressor, someone who's unjust, who would never be able to do what they do without that knowledge. So you become employed, you become at the service of, all for the sake of getting a little bit of wealth, making a little bit of money, something worldly. And so this is part also of what we have to understand. You're basically enslaved, obeying someone else, and so you have cheapened knowledge, made it into something transactional. Knowledge becomes something no different than any other commodity that people own. You're always constantly afraid. How is it going to be used? What's its value? Imam Ali makes that distinction, inshallah, we'll come back to it later. When he talks to Kumail again and again in his advice to Kumail, he compares between wealth and knowledge. This is one way to understand it. At some point he tells him knowledge will guard you, if it's true knowledge, whereas you have to guard your wealth and your possessions. You're always fearful over it. You're always working hard to preserve it and make it grow. Knowledge will do that for you if it's true knowledge on its own. Okay, the next point here is that if it is derived out of fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the hadith says everything is going to be made to revere you. If you fear Allah, this is, this is derived out of it, right? Here it's talking about if the knowledge is for the sake of Allah. We have a hadith that talk about someone in general, not about knowledge, just in general, someone who fears Allah. If you only truly fear Allah and nothing else in the ahadith and the narrations, we are told, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make everything fear you. If you, to the extent that you only fear Allah, everything else will be made to fear you and you fear nothing except God. And to the extent that it is not only Allah that you fear, then you are going to be made to fear everything else. The more you only fear Allah, the more everything just fears you. And you fear nothing but Allah. And this is what you see in prophets, you see in the awliya, you see in regular people who have extremely strong faith. You see that they're entirely unshakable. The only thing they are afraid of is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're willing to stand in front of anything. They know their values, they know where their faith is, and nothing shakes that. But if your fear is of other things than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you are going to also be fearful of everything else. The same applies to knowledge. Here, it's an application of that general rule. To the extent that your knowledge was the, for the sake of Allah, then everything is going to be made to revere you. To the extent that it is not, it's for this life, then you are also going to be made to revere and to obey and to respect that's the, the Hayba, we're going to see it. 
Habe. Habe is to have a type of fear out of respect. You consider something so great that you start to fear it. You respect it to the point of fearing it. That's the Haiba that you have. This is only the case if that knowledge is not for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If it is, then you know where that knowledge comes from and how it is to be used, and you fear nothing else. And inshallah, we'll talk a lot more about this when we talk about the characteristics of the scholars. The next hadith that we have from Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, لَوْ أَنَّ حَمَلَةَ الْعِلْمِ حَمَلُوهُ If those who carry, who are supposed to carry the knowledge, carry it as they ought to carry it, لَأَحَبَّهُمُ اللَّهُ وَمَلَائِكَتُهُ وَأَهْلُ طَاعَتِهِ مِنْ خَلْقِهِ Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His angels and those who obey Him from among His creatures would love them would love those who carry the knowledge if they carry it as they ought to carry it but when they carry that knowledge they carry it because of their their desire for this world so what happens Allah. so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala disliked them and as a result you become abject you become without value. You become a very low value. You become cheap in the eyes of people. Why? Because you're not carrying it, the knowledge as you ought to carry it. So there's a first point here, inshallah, we're going to spend a bit of time on this later. A link to be made between knowledge and spirituality. We've seen it in a couple of hadith now. This is a third one. You see the effect that knowledge can have spiritually because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with you. There's a spiritual, almost mystical dimension to knowledge that we're going to see in a lot of the ahadith. Well, we will spend a little bit of time on that to, to really understand it. That's one. The second point is that beyond the kind of supernatural, mystical, spiritual dimension, Another way to understand this is simply to understand knowledge as something with a dimension that is, we can call it psychosocial or social psychological. Those who carry knowledge, people recognize that they carry knowledge. And so intuitively you understand the power that this person has because of this knowledge that they carry. This is the other way to understand it, especially when you understand the end of the hadith. So the first part of it could be understood much more spiritually. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His angels and those who obey Allah are going to love those people who carry the knowledge. Okay, what about the others? It doesn't say anything about them, so we don't know. So we can't really say about just the normal psychology of people interacting with those who carry knowledge. But what about those who carry the knowledge for the wrong reasons? Then the hadith tells us there is a component of it, let's consider it spiritual. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala maqatahum. He hates them or despises them or dislikes them. But then the part that we can see right in front of us, this is a material physical part, a social psychological part. Wahanu alamnas. So one way to understand why they become cheap in the eyes of people is to say because of the spiritual dimension, sure. But there's more. 
It's that these people, they're going after this world. So the knowledge that you're pursuing and the knowledge that you're carrying is no different than any other commodity. How are you different than the businessman who is willing to cheat or steal or do whatever it takes to acquire the wealth and to keep the wealth and to maintain it? To use whatever is at his disposal to gain more power and more wealth. How are you different? If your knowledge is for God and you have the moral system that goes around it, you would never lower yourself to that. But if not, when people look at those who carry knowledge and see that the actions don't match that knowledge, that knowledge does not make you any one special, does not make you any in any way, shape or form different from everybody else, then of course you're going to be cheapened. And in fact, people will use that against you. And so you'll be even cheaper than the person who doesn't carry the knowledge. And that's how those who do not, as Imam Ali says, they do not carry it as they ought to carry it, as they should carry it. And this is something that is awful, and we will see that along a little bit today, and we'll get into it later. The, the devastating damage that is done to faith and to religion and to spirituality, when someone who carries or is supposed to carry the knowledge, they don't act accordingly. They don't act as they ought to act given the knowledge that they have because they do tremendous damage that goes way beyond them. They ruin generations, they ruin society, they ruin entire communities because they're not using that knowledge appropriately. That's the power and the duty that comes with that knowledge. The next hadith from the Holy Prophet he says, The scholars of my nation are of two kinds. رَجُلٌ آتَاهُ اللَّهُ عِلْمًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given knowledge to one type of man فَطَلَبَ بِهِ وَجْهَ اللَّهُ وَالدَّارَ الْآخِرَةِ So he seeks through the knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given him the sake of God and the afterlife وَبَذَلَهُ لِلنَّاسِ وَلَمْ يَأْخُذْ عَلَيْهِ طَمَعًا بَذَلَهُ is when you give something freely and generously So he gives it generously and freely to people and he does not and he does not take an exchange for granting this knowledge to others he does not exchange it for greed and he doesn't sell it for a cheap price so that person the creatures of the in the depths of the seas, on the land, in the water, and in the air, will ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness for him. This can be summarized as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes the world, the universe that you live in, the part that we don't see, spiritually, you are aligned with the world in which you live. And inshallah, we'll come back to that much later in this series. This harmony or alignment, when you are as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to be, how nature responds to you, how the universe responds to you. This is all in this world. So this person is of this special status in this world. And then, 
in the afterlife, when he comes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he comes in the shape, in the form of a honored or a noble lord, a noble sir, a noble master, right? Sayyidan Sharifa. And then the second type of man that the Holy Prophet described, وَرَجُلٌ When he began, he says, عُلَمَاءُ أُمَّتِي رَجُلًا وَرَجُلٌ This is the second one. وَرَجُلٌ آتَاهُ اللَّهُ عِلْمًا Another man, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, has also bestowed knowledge upon him. فَبَخِلَ بِهِ عَلَىٰ عِبَادِ اللَّهِ But he does not share it. He's greedy and stingy in uh, sharing it to the servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَأَخَذَ عَلَيْهِ طَمَعًا And he exchanges it for greed. واشترى به ثمنا قليلا and he sells it for a cheap price فذلك يلجم يوم القيامة بلجام من نار that man is going to be muzzled in the on the day of judgment with a sheath with a muzzle of hell muzzle as a muzzle made of fire that's the image that the holy prophet describes in this hadith I think the point once again is the sincerity why are you learning the knowledge. That's one and that part is clear. There are the spiritual effects. We said we will come back to that inshallah later in the series. The link with our worth in the afterlife. And we talked about that previously. Your true worth, your true value in this world only appears in the afterlife. And that's why this person only in the afterlife will they appear in the form of Sayyidan Sharifa. Right? The fourth part of this hadith is that there is a duty, once again, related to the knowledge. The Holy Prophet did not only talk about gaining the knowledge, he emphasized, in fact, in the hadith about this person who openly and generously shares the knowledge they have with others. That's the condition here. We're going to come back to that, inshallah. And then finally, there is also the, the constant, this is a, a topic I think we're going to spend a little bit of time on. It's a question that we face, let's say, theoretically, but practically as well. When he talks about, when the Holy Prophet talks about this exchange for money, this exchange for a value of something of this world, does it mean that you should never ever take anything in exchange for the knowledge? Or that you should never give someone in exchange for what they're teaching you? We're going to come back to that, inshallah. Okay? There is a special meaning referred to here, not in general. So we're going to need to qualify that later, inshallah. The next hadith from the Holy Prophet he says مَنْ طَلَبَ الْعِلْمَ لِلَّهِ Whoever seeks knowledge for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as for the one who seeks knowledge for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala لَمْ يُصِبْ مِنْهُ بَعْبًا إِلَّا ازْدَادَ فِي نَفْسِهِ Every time he acquires a new chapter of knowledge that chapter of knowledge that he has acquired is only going to increase him modesty in himself he will view himself as being less superior, less arrogant. And so this is just alone with himself. He will see himself as less significant than he was before acquiring the knowledge. And then when he is with people, he will be much more modest, much more humble amongst the people. And the more every new chapter of knowledge should only lead to an increase in fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to struggle further and to work harder in religion 
That is the person who benefits from knowledge, so let that person acquire that knowledge, learn that knowledge. That's the first half of the hadith. So you can imagine the second half. As for the one who has sought knowledge for a worldly reason, a worldly purpose. And so that he has a higher rank among the people. And so that he has more power and authority with the Sultan, with the ruler, with those who have authority, with those who rule over people. You want to have more fortune, you want to have more favor with them. Every time they acquire a new chapter, a new type of knowledge, this only makes them increase when they look at themselves, just the person looking at who they are on their own. This will only make them view themselves as being greater. They will feel that they are now a greater person because of the knowledge that they have gained. And they start feeling superior over people. They start feeling arrogant over people. And he starts becoming arrogant towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he starts feeling aversion or indifference. He creates a distance between himself and religion. As for that man, that is the man who does not benefit from knowledge. So let that person abstain. From what? From learning knowledge. We've been talking about learning knowledge all along. Now the Holy Prophet is adding this condition. Why are you learning knowledge? Why, O Prophet, why do you say this person should abstain? Let him abstain and hold back from creating an argument against himself, from creating evidence against himself. It's better for him not to. So even in this case, the Holy Prophet is sincerely giving you advice. Right? Do not learn that knowledge. It will be used against you. It will bring you down. This is what Allah will use as evidence against you in the afterlife. You knew and you still did. It's better for you not to know. If this is how you're going to use it. Right? فَلْيَكُفْ Let him abstain. وَلْيُمْسِكْ عَنِ الْحُجَّةِ عَلَى نَفْسِهِ And let him avoid the argument against himself. وَالنَّدَامَةَ وَالْخِزْيَ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ in addition to the regret and the remorse and the humiliation in the afterlife. So I think here the, the one thing, you, you, you saw a number of consequences described in the hadith when you have true knowledge, what should happen to you internally and what should happen to you socially, how you view yourself. And so let this be a test for us. Right? Every time we've been talking and we will continue to talk a little bit more on this need for having the right intentions for our knowledge, then this becomes a test. I can go back to this hadith and look at the criteria that the Holy Prophet is giving. Does it make me want to struggle more and work harder in religion? Does it make me feel more humble and modest? Or am I becoming more arrogant because of this knowledge that I'm acquiring? So, is the knowledge worldly or uh, otherworldly? And um, yeah, I will keep the rest for later, inshallah. Okay.
the next hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, مَنْ تَعَلَّمَ الْعِلْمَ لِلْعَمَلِ بِهِ لَمْ يُوحِشْهُ كَسَادُهُ The one who learns the knowledge, who acquires the knowledge with the purpose of acting upon it. So in the previous hadith, we saw the insistence on لِلَّهِ لِوَجْهِ اللَّهِ Here we have the other version, which I explained in the beginning. We're talking about the same thing, but now practically it needs to become action so that you act on it always for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The one who learns the knowledge for the sake of acting upon it, they will not feel lonely when they are not sought. When people are not seeking them, when people are not desiring them. Why does Imam Ali talk about this? Because this is a real problem especially when you acquire knowledge. You think that therefore everyone should flock to you and they should come to you and sit at your feet and learn the knowledge from you. So the Imam salam here is giving you another criteria. If the intent was the right intent, if you learned the knowledge for the right thing, then your intent was to act on it. And so long as you're acting on it, then you should be happy. And you should not feel lonely that people are not coming to you and not desiring you, right? And so that's why he says, Lem yuhishhu, he doesn't feel lonely, he doesn't feel alone, kesad. Kesad is, oftentimes they say it's the ruin of something, it's used for a market or products that you sell in the market, that's the kesad. But this is the consequence of the kesad, that something is becoming bankrupted. Or Why? Because it's not being sought, because people are not desiring it. That's the kesad, when something is not being desired. Okay, so when you are not being desired, even though you carry the knowledge, someone else may feel that they are all alone. They wonder why is it that people are not coming to me when I have all this knowledge. But the Imam says, but what was your intention? Was your intention to act upon your knowledge? Okay, so it doesn't matter if people come or not. Are you acting upon your knowledge? That should be the criteria. The next hadith from the Holy Prophet he says, مَنْ أَخَذَ الْعِلْمَ مِنْ أَهْلِهِ وَعَمِلَ بِهِ نَجَةِ The one who acquires the knowledge from its people, from the people of knowledge. The one who acquires the knowledge from its people, وَعَمِلَ بِهِ and who works based on that knowledge, who acts based on that knowledge, they have been saved, they have been rescued. وَمَنْ أَرَادَ بِهِ الدُّنْيَا فَهُوَ and as for the one who seeks this world with that knowledge, then that will be their limit or, their, or the limit of what they get. So once again, I think the, the importance of the, the intention is clear. So not more time on this. But here we have a new notion that is added. You seek the knowledge from its people. So now we know there are the people of knowledge. Not everyone who has carried the knowledge is the, are the people of knowledge. Min Who are Ahlul Ilm? Okay, so we will inshallah talk more about that. That's one. And so there is a worthiness to carry that knowledge. That's the notion. But the second notion, the Holy Prophet said, Man min So the next notion is, therefore we need to seek those people out to get the knowledge from them. Okay, so inshallah we'll talk about the criteria of the teacher. The criteria of the person who carries that knowledge. Inshallah that will come. 
and then true knowledge leads to being saved being rescued having actually accomplished successfully the purpose for which you were created that's what brings us back to the initial conversations we had about ilm so this person has acquired it with the intention of acting upon it and then finally as the holy prophet says in the end here as important as we've been you know saying knowledge is the holy prophet still says at the end وَمَنْ أَرَادَ بِهِ الدُّنْيَا فَهُوَ حَظَّهُ You don't get more than anything in this world if your intent from the knowledge you're acquiring, it doesn't matter which knowledge. It could be natural sciences knowledge, but it could also be religious knowledge. If the intent behind the knowledge is this world, then you get nothing beyond this world. This world becomes the limit of your knowledge. It doesn't carry you into the afterlife. What you can amass from the knowledge, the benefits of this knowledge are limited to this world. And so this is why we are, we're insisting on the idea of the intention. Before we talk about the types of knowledge, before we say how important it is to, you know, spend time really understanding aqaid and fiqh and akhlaat and tafsir and all the other sciences that we will talk about. Before you talk about that, the Holy Prophet says of the intention of acquiring that is this world then you get nothing beyond this world from that knowledge. Okay, so let that be a warning. The next hadith that we have is from the Holy Prophet once again. And here we have a number of narrations, inshallah, we can go quickly uh, through them. Uh, they kind of highlight the importance of intention, sincerity, but each time with uh, one new dimension, okay, or one more than one new dimension okay but something new in each one of these the first one the holy prophet says if you are seeking knowledge in order to trick people then you will never smell the fragrance of paradise okay so a couple of points here the first one is once again i think this highlights the relationship between knowledge and power Knowledge can easily be used to trick people. And that's why the Holy Prophet makes a point to talk about it. Okay, so that's one. So tricking people could be, you know, I create a whole scheme to whatever, and it could also be tricking people about myself. I could be a hypocrite who doesn't believe in the knowledge I'm sharing, but I trick them about myself, about my reputation, about my image, right? So that the tricking can happen in a lot of ways. That's one. لَمْ يَجِدْ رِيحَ الْجَنَّةِ What does it mean? Does it mean he doesn't enter into paradise? No, this is a lot further. We have narrations that talk about the fragrance, the perfume of paradise that can be smelled at a distance of, in the narrations, at a distance of 1,000 years away. In other words, not only is this person not going to enter paradise, they will never go anywhere near paradise. They've created a buffer zone that will prevent them forever from entering paradise. They are very far removed from paradise if this is what they're doing. If the intent behind acquiring knowledge is to trick people. The next hadith, مَنْ تَعَلَّمَ الْعِلْمَ رِيَاءً From the Holy Prophet مَنْ تَعَلَّمَ الْعِلْمَ The one who seeks knowledge, رِيَاءً So for show, to show people or show off. وَسُمْعَةً Or to increase or improve their reputation. يُرِيدُ بِهِ الدُّنْيَا And who wants 
seeking this world with that knowledge, Allahu barakatah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will extract or remove the blessing from this person. And this one is very interesting. Allah makes his sustenance, his livelihood, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it narrow. The whole point of using the knowledge that way was to make your livelihood expanded, right? You're trying to improve your economic, financial, social state. Allah, the, the Holy Prophet says it has the opposite effect. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make your livelihood narrow, difficult. وَوَكَلَهُ اللَّهُ إِلَىٰ نَفْسِهِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will leave him alone to rely only on himself. And this one is a very important point to keep in mind. This is the link with Tawheed. This is the link with always having Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, having the mindfulness or the awareness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and your need for him all the time. As you increase in knowledge, this awareness and mindfulness should only increase. And if not, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes it away from you and makes He makes you rely on yourself. You're basically walking in the opposite direction of what Tawheed intends to do. And whomever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala leaves to rely only on himself, that person has been ruined or destroyed. The next hadith, man ta'allama. من تعلم العلم لغير الله تعالى فليتبوى مقعده من النار This is the general rule. Now that we've gone through all of these, the general rule is, so all of it is included in this, whoever is learning or seeking to learn knowledge, not for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, فليتبوى مقعده من النار Let that person choose or prepare the seat that is awaiting them in the Hellfire. Okay, from the Holy Prophet Whomever seeks to learn knowledge, not to act upon it for reasons other than to act on that knowledge. They are like someone who is mocking their Lord, mighty and exalted. And we talked about this in earlier hadith. We saw the Holy Prophet says the knowledge imparted by God. In early when we talked about the special status of knowledge, we said it's sacred. It's sacred because knowledge has its source in Allah. And then there are all sorts of means through which it descends to us, through which we acquire it. But the origin of knowledge is one and it's only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it can only reach you through Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's blessing of you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is choosing, is permitting you to acquire that knowledge. And at the end of it, you're still going against Allah with that knowledge. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if you're using it not as I intended, not as I wanted you to use it, which is to act now that you know, then the Holy Prophet says, it is as though he is mocking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's ridiculing Allah. فَهُوَ كَالْمُسْتَهْزِئِ بِرَبِّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلُ the Holy Prophet says, maybe I'll keep that one for last, one more hadith and then I'll come back to this one. Man ilman, the Holy Prophet says, Man ilman mimma yubtaga bihi wajhullah. If someone learns a knowledge 
And that type of knowledge is the type of knowledge where you should only seek it because you are looking to satisfy Allah, to please Allah for the sake of God. So the one who acquires a knowledge that ought to be acquired for the sake of God. Okay? مَنْ تَعَلَّمَ عِلْمًا مِمَّا يُبْتَغَى بِهِ وَجْهَ اللَّهِ لَا يَتَعَلَّمْهُ إِلَّا لِيُصِيبَ بِهِ عَرَضًا مِنَ الدُّنْيَا And yet, they are only learning it so that they acquire some perishable thing of this world. عَرَض مِنَ الدُّنْيَا لَمْ يَجِدْ عَرْفَ الْجَنَّةِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ They will never recognize or find the fragrance of paradise and the afterlife. So similar notion, but there's something in this hadith that I wanted to really bring to your attention. The beginning says, مَنْ تَعَلَّمَ عِلْمًا مِمَّا يُبْتَغَى بِهِ وَجْهُ اللَّهِ There are types of knowledge that are really about for the sake of God. You learn those types of knowledge specifically to obey Allah, to have a relationship with God, to act for the sake of God. Those types of knowledge, if you do that type of purpose with them, intent with them, that is different from what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants, that's the result. Keep that in mind. Now we go to the other hadith and let's finish with that one. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to some of his prophets. We began with a hadith similar to this one. Now we're coming to another one that has a bit more detail. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed to some of his prophets. Tell those who seek or who acquire the depth of knowledge for purposes other than religion. So that they do something with it that does not help them spiritually or religiously. And they learn but not to act upon the knowledge that they have. And they seek this life not for the afterlife. They seek this life for this life. They wear to the people, before the people, they wear garments of sheep. When their hearts are the hearts of wolves. Because of the knowledge they have, their tongues are sweeter, their speech is sweeter than honey. And their deeds are more bitter than cacti. Cactus is very, very bitter. Is it me? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells these prophets to tell the people. Is it me that they are tricking? With this use of knowledge in the wrong way, is it me that they are tricking? If that's what they are doing, then I will punish them or reward them with a fitna, with difficulties that will leave the most wise completely dumbfounded or completely at a loss. That's the punishment for using the knowledge in the wrong way. And of course, this is only in this world. Inshallah, I will come back to this. I wanted to mention, and maybe you can read it, and then we can highlight the couple of passages that have to do with this. The first point related to this hadith is, of course, intention, 
in every case we've been highlighting that you do it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the right intention that's one the second thing is he talked about in the hadith he talked about life for this life you are seeking life for this life versus life for the afterlife and this is perhaps a link to the other hadith the previous one there are types of knowledge where that type of knowledge ought only to be used for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala religious types of knowledge, mystical types of knowledge. Other ones, maybe not. There is no issue in those other ones that they are not necessarily for Allah, but don't expect any reward from them. But there's also no punishment. But those that are supposed to be only for the sake of Allah, there's a punishment associated with them. And there's a duty and a responsibility that comes with them. And then here, this is the, the link that I wanted to make. We, I don't think we have time. I wanted to talk uh, to answer a question that I postponed from last week. We have 10 minutes to do it quickly. Uh, this is the link where Allah, the beginning of the hadith says Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed to some of his prophets. So what I was going to do is read a passage from one of the most famous passages in the Bible, in the New Testament. So I invite you to go read it on your own over the week. Inshallah, when we come back, we can highlight those parts. It's the sermon, the sermon on the Mount of Jesus salam. You find it in Matthew 5, 6, 7. So inshallah, when we read it, there are a couple of passages that you will quickly draw an analogy from to everything that we've been talking about. I'll be interested to see if you find them. Otherwise, I'm going to highlight them for you. To, to show the similarity in the wording and in the images that you find in those. Okay, so inshallah we'll come back to that and we will continue with the discussion on uh, intention behind knowledge. So let's stop here and then answer the question that we had in a couple of minutes. وَصَلَى عَلَى سَيِّدِنَا مُحَمَّدٍ وَعَلَى آلِهِ So the question, a very interesting question that we didn't have time to cover, uh, one amongst you uh, sent the question, I thought it was very, a very interesting question that may be relevant to many of you. In fact, it's a, a number of questions into one. So I thought I would address it publicly um, and it has to do with the Adhan. So very quickly, a comparative, a Sunni Shi'i comparative of the Adhan. What are the origins of the Adhan? One. Two, what are the differences and what are the origins of those differences in the Adhan? The first point, there is an agreement amongst the Muslims that the Adhan is an act of worship. So generally speaking, acts of worship need to have a direct link to the Holy Prophet so that we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed this as an act of worship. And this is where you know, someone who says this is an act of worship when it is not, we refer to that as an innovation. Or you take an act of worship and you make changes to it that are not justified, you say this is an innovation, and so on and so forth. When it comes to the Adhan, it's the same kind. Okay, so that's first and foremost. Is the Adhan the same, uh, in the same sense, an act of worship as Salah and Psalm and Hajj? Yes, it is, except that it is not obligatory. So that is what can be kept in mind first and foremost that of course it is extremely strongly recommended and in fact the iqama is perhaps even more when you're about to pray but if you do not perform them you do not recite the adhan and the iqama nothing invalidates your prayer 
right? There's no issue, no harm. There are no punishment, nothing is lacking in your prayer. That's one. The origins of the Adhan. Very quickly, and this is only, this would really require a good long discussion, even technical discussion in a lot of parts, but I thought I would at least try to share the common view, the general understanding of the two schools and what they believe. In the Sunni school of thought, they believe that the story that is repeated, and you find, of course, there's a lot of evidence in this in many, many narrations, that the Holy Prophet ﷺ, after the prayer was revealed and the Muslims were praying, the Holy Prophet was really very preoccupied in trying to find a way to call people to the Adhan, uh, to the prayer. So he did not know what to do. He was very concerned. So he started to ask his companions, going left and right in the hadith, he goes to one after another after another, he talked to them in groups, he talked to them one-on-one, -on -one. what should we do, how do we call people, people are scattered and we want them all in one place so that we can perform the prayer together. So some of them said, let's put up a banner and bring it down and up. We bring it up only at time of prayers and bring it down later. Some people said, let's put a fire on and the smoke will tell people. Some people said, that let's use the trumpet or let's use the drum. Those two instruments were used by the Jews and the Christians to call to their prayer at that time. The Holy Prophet did not like any of those recommendations and he continued to wonder what to do. So this is where we have different narrations and different versions of what happens next. But generally speaking, the, the, the version that is the most accepted is that one of the companions of the Holy Prophet Abdullah ibn Zayd ibn Rabbah, he comes to the Holy Prophet and he tells him that finally he's very happy because he saw a dream. And in that dream, he was taught how to say the Adhan, which is basically the call to prayer. So the Holy Prophet tells him, what did you see? He tells him exactly what he saw. He tells him, this is a dream of truth. Call Bilal. So he calls Bilal, he tells Bilal, your, your voice is nicer and stronger. So you are the one who is going to call to prayer. Whatever Abdullah is going to teach you, you are going to recite exactly as he teaches you. In one version, we have Umar ibn al-Khattab right there. He tells the Holy Prophet right away, I saw the same dream. 20 nights ago. Except, so the Holy Prophet tells him, but why did you not tell me? He tells him, I was too shy, and then now that I wanted to tell you, he told you before me. That's one version. In another version, we are told that Umar ibn al-Khattab was home. And the call, so Bilal called to prayer, and Umar started hearing the wording of the Adhan, and so he came out running out of the house, and in the hadith they say he was not even fully wearing all his clothes, his abaya, he was still wearing it on the way, and yelling to the Holy Prophet, telling him, I swear I saw the same dream, I saw the same dream. Okay, something of that sort. So once again, you know, you, you have a lot of different versions, I'm not gonna go through all of these uh, discussions now and all these uh, versions. The biggest problem we have with all of this, at the theological level, we completely reject that. This has re been rejected from day one by the Shia and continues to be until now. We find it degrading that the Holy Prophet does not know how to handle something that is religious. Even if we wanted to let go some things, which we do sometimes, we don't make a fuss about things the Holy Prophet did not know how to act in a war, to prepare for a battle. These are worldly things. They, they are things that concern day-to-day -day life. 
But when it comes to the revelation of religion, there is no way in which we can accept that the Holy Prophet is so preoccupied and at a loss. Where is God in the equation here? Is this a religion revealed by God or not? And is it revealed through a prophet or not? Okay, so what's the purpose here? What's the role that some random person, a non-prophet, is receiving the revelation through a dream? And the Holy Prophet sanctions it. Was he allowed to sanction it by God or not? How does that work? Okay, so there's a theological issue. On the one side, it's degrading and disrespectful to the Holy Prophet to be dealing in this way about religious things. And theologically, it causes huge issues. So who was the source of the Adhan? Do we say the source was Allah? Was it the Prophet? Was it Umar ibn al-Khattab? Was it Abdullah ibn Zayd? We have other narrations that say it was Bilal who says the Holy Prophet taught me. And we have someone else also who was a big mu'adhan in the time of the Holy Prophet who says the Holy Prophet taught me and so on and so forth. Okay, so that's one issue. Another issue is that um, the contradiction between the different versions is very problematic in the science of hadith. And everybody knows this who has studied any hadith anywhere in the Muslim world. When you have so many different versions of the same event, unless they are complementing each other, when they contradict each other, there is an issue. And many scholars say so both versions fall, right? Unless you can prove one of the versions and you're not sure of the other, then the one you're unsure of, you can let go of. But when you're, they have the same level of trustworthiness, which is the case here, then they all fall because they can't, either Umar ibn al-Khattab saw the dream the same day or not, either he saw it 20 days before or not, either he was there when the uh, companion said that he saw the dream or he only heard it when he was home and he came out and so on and so forth. And usually this is, these are signs of distortion or fabrication of a hadith later, where the people who are coming up with the hadith are not sitting together writing it at the same time. Okay, that's the issue. We're, we're skipping here uh, quickly. So the other problem, of course, here there's a huge problem with the chain of narrators. We don't have time to go through. The two people who are said to have seen the dream, both of them, the only people who reported, first of all, the chains are missing. There are weak links in the chain. But both of them are reported only, ultimately, only by a member of their family, a descendant of theirs. So those people, uh, Abu Mahdura and uh, Abdullah ibn Zayd ibn uh, Abid Rabbah, both of these companions, they're not really well known in, for anything else in Islamic history except for that one event. And so if it is the case, then you could clearly see that perhaps there's something introduced here to give them some favor. To, so that my ancestor has some favor as well, just like everybody else's, right? That's the issue. In the versions, if you go back in the versions, another version is that Abu Bakr was also present and he saw the same dream. In another version, we are told that seven other companions amongst the Ansar saw the dream. And another version, we are told 14 companions saw the dream. So the, this only adds to the contradictions of how the event happened. Later, in the evolution of Adhan, we have the issue of Tathweeb. What is Tathweeb? It's when you add in the prayer, in the Adhan, you add As-Salatu Khayrun Min An-Nawm or As-Salatu Qa'imah or one of these uh, additional statements. When did those get introduced? Generally speaking, we have one version that says Bilal came to the Holy Prophet for Salat al-Fajr. The Holy Pro he found the Holy Prophet asleep. So in one version you have Bilal seeing the Holy Prophet. 
In another version, you have Bilal coming and the Holy Prophet is in his own house sleeping and Bilal can't see him. In both cases, he yelled. Bilal is the one who yelled, As-salatu khayrun min al-nawm. And this eventually made it into the Adhan for the Fajr prayer only. So that becomes the source of As-salatu khayrun min al-nawm according to a few narrations. That's one. The other one is the Holy Prophet. Bilal says, the Holy Prophet taught me to perform the Adhan this way and that's how I have performed it. So Bilal is attributing in that other hadith this part as well as the rest of the Adhan to the Holy Prophet We have another version uh, in which it was part of the dream that uh, Abdullah bin Zayd saw. And then we also have uh, the other version which is the one that is kind of unanimously accepted by all the historians. And this is the version that Umar ibn al-Khattab during his Khilafah introduced this statement officially in the Adhan. It was used by Bilal during the Khilafah of Abu Bakr, but he himself had heard it from someone else during the Adhan and he liked it and so he introduced it. And then we have many of the scholars of the, the, the Sunni school who have really looked into this, that's what they tell us. They say it was not initially part of the Adhan. So they would recite the Adhan and they would add this part after the Adhan because it's Salat al-Fajr. And then with time, so this we are told was actually uh, Imam Abu Hanifa's opinion that it was after but that it was introduced into it later. And is it therefore an innovation? They say it is an innovation but it is a good innovation. This is something that does not harm the uh, structure and the meaning of the Adhan and it is a good thing to call people and to remind them that this is better for you to come to prayer than to stay asleep especially in Salat al-Fajr. Okay and the same may apply to the other parts that are sometimes mentioned. So generally speaking and I don't want to go over all the details here generally speaking historically they say that it was during the Khilafah of Umar ibn al-Khattab that this became officially part of the Adhan. He, he made a, uh, an executive decision as the ruler to use that statement in the Adhan. Okay, he thought that it was really good for people to say that as part of the Adhan, especially if Salat al-Fajr. And then here, if you go through their works, as I said, I don't have time to go through all the details. In their works, they say the first time that it was mentioned, and Imam Ali salam heard it because it was mentioned in his time, he said, do not add anything that is not part of the Adhan to it. And many of the companions who were alive at that time, who heard Imam Ali salam, they agreed with him. And many of the companions refused to perform, to say that statement in their Adhan. And in fact, we have some companions, we are told, who would refuse to pray in a mosque where it was being mentioned. Okay, from the Sunni school. Okay, we're not talking about the Shia school who have been uh, on the other path from day one, right? The last point that I wanted to mention, so of course I'm not mentioning here, as I said, all the Imams, all the Imams of the Shia have since day one said that this is unacceptable. The last part that I wanted to mention here is that the second Adhan was also introduced much later. So in the Khilafah of Uthman, a second and sometimes third Adhans were introduced. So you read the Adhan once and then you read it a second time. And those who have lived in Islamic countries, certain Islamic countries, you know that sometimes there is more than one Adhan, especially on Yom Al-Jum'ah or others. So if you go in Fiqh, this is the beginning of it. They say there are so many people who would come and would have to attend from very scattered places to perform the Adhan. We want to give them maximum time. So we give them a, a warning Adhan first and then the real Adhan and sometimes three of them so that people come. 
So by strictly religious standards, this would be an issue as well. You can't just introduce things like this if you wanted to, because you think that it is better. It's one adhan, one iqama, and you pray. Okay? That's, uh, uh, generally speaking, the second big point. The third one is, That statement was removed. Once again, if you go back through uh, all of the uh, narrations and all the books of history, you see that that statement was actually removed once again during the Khilafah, most likely, of Umar ibn al-Khattab. That statement was removed, why? Based on a rational reason. Arise for the best of deeds. Arise for the best of actions. What is the best of actions? What is the best of deeds? So they say this is the call to when there's a battle and you want to rally the people to go on this military expedition. So you say that. So they thought that it's contradictory on the one side to do that when you need people to come and rally to a military expedition, which was very important at that time, and then telling people come to prayer, and then they might get confused. Which of the two is the best of actions? Which one is khair al-amal? So you know what? We remove khair al-amal entirely out of the equation so that it doesn't cause confusion and no Muslim is left wondering which one is khair al-amal? Do I go to the military expedition or do I come to the prayer? Okay, so that was the rationale for removing If you go back in history, this became uh, It is written in many of the books of history in reference to the Shia. So sometimes they're referred to as Rafada, sometimes referred to as Shia, sometimes they're referred to as Those who say in their Adhan because they refused to remove that statement. And when they took over the rule of Medina, Al-Ashraf, so Al-Ashraf are the descendants of Imam Al-Hassan they ruled Medina for almost eight centuries. When the first thing that they did was to go to the pulpit of the Minara, to the, 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 the pulpit of the Adhan, and to say the Adhan with Hayya ala khayr al This is what you go back to the books of history and you see that this has become a symbol, right? So this is all, you know, uh, good and swell, but Generally speaking, what do we believe? The Shia. Generally speaking, we believe that the Adhan was revealed to the Holy Prophet like every other act of worship. We have two narrations that are often cited for this. The first one is that the Holy Prophet was lying on the ground resting with his head in the lap of Imam Ali Jibra'il came to the Holy Prophet and taught him the Adhan and the Iqamah. When it was done, the Holy Prophet looked at Imam Ali and he told him, did you hear? He said, I heard. He told him, did you memorize? He told him, I memorize. He told him, call Bilal and teach him. That is one narration that we have. The second narration is the Holy Prophet in the Isra and Mi'raj event heard when he was in the fourth heaven, if you go back in the narrations, he heard Jibra'il salam perform the Adhan and the Iqamah. And then he was asked to lead the prayers among the ranks of prophets and angels. And that's what the Holy Prophet did. And so when he came back, he taught the Adhan and Iqamah that he heard from Jibra'il to the Muslims for the prayer. And that became the call for prayer. These are the two ruwayat. There's no contradiction between them. In fact, most likely both happened. These are two separate events. And we'll talk about that uh, in a different uh, instance. All of these ruwayat are mentioned. Both of these are mentioned in a number of books that are considered authentic and trustworthy uh, in the Sunni school as well. Sirah al-Halabiyya, al-Mustadrak, and many other uh, works. So that's one thing. Now we come to 
أشهد أن عليا ولي الله. So we hear in many places where there is a adhan performed by the Shia when they say أشهد أن عليا ولي الله. What do we do with that? The unanimous part amongst all the fuqaha, all the scholars in the Shia school, is that أشهد أن عليا ولي الله is not part of the core of the adhan. Now I'm, I'm carefully saying this, not part of the core of the adhan. But here they go in two different categories. One group of scholars says that it is not a part of the adhan at all, but it may be stated and it could be recommended. Example, if you go back in the narrations, you see that when you, someone says Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, it's mustahab to say shahida bidhalika azmi wa lahmi wa dami wa sha'ri wa... Okay, that for instance. You have those types of statements. So if you say that when someone says the adhan, or even if the mu'addin says that, no one will say that this is an innovation or a change. So long as everybody knows this is not part of the adhan, it's mustahab. But it's not a part of the adhan at all. That's one school. The second school says it is part of the adhan, but it is only a recommended part. It's a mustahab part. So that if you say it, you get a thawab. But if you don't, there's nothing. Example, qunut. When you perform the qunut in your prayer, Qunut is not obligatory. You may perform it, you may skip it. There's no issue in skipping it. If you perform it, so long as you don't consider it, you're not creating your own version of prayer where Qunut is obligatory, there is no issue in that. Okay, so this is the fiqhi position historically. That's one. The evidence for this position. We already said that the Adhan and the Iqama are not in themselves acts of obligatory worship, as in you don't have to perform them. That is the part that we keep in mind. The second, there are narrations that support this in general. What? Like what? For instance, we have a narration for where the Holy Prophet says, and there's a number of these, the Holy Prophet says, uh, Ya Ali, in Kitab al-Ihtijaj, for instance, Ya Ali, inni talibtu min Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala an yadhkuraka fi kulli mawridin yadhkuruni fa'ajabani wastajabani. I have asked, O oh Ali, I have asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that every time he mentions me, he also mentions you when mentioning me, and he has accepted my prayer, responded to my prayer. So where, when and where is the Holy Prophet mentioned? So these are the general proofs, okay? That's one type. Another type we have from Imam Sadiq who tells his companions, whenever you perform the two shahada, whenever you say Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah wa Ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah, also say Ashadu anna aliyan waliullah, or Ashadu anna aliyan hajatullah, or Ashadu anna aliyan wa awladahu khayrul bariya, or one of those formulations. That's two. The third type of proof, very quickly, is the special proof. So these were the general rule. What about the special rule? We have narrations that specifically state after the event of Ghadir Khum, after the Holy Prophet appointed Imam Ali السلام, as the Imam, Salman al Farisi stood and performed the Adhan and he mentioned Ashadu Anna Ali and Waliullah after Ashadu Anna Muhammad Rasulullah. And they came and they complained to the Holy Prophet وآله, telling him Salman basically just created his own version of the Adhan, he just added a statement in the Adhan that was not part of it. And the Holy Prophet told the man who complained, he told him, Sami'ta or Qad Sami'ta Khayra. Okay, what you have heard is good. There is no issue in the Adhan of Salman. Abu Dhar did the same thing later. They went back to Medina and Abu Dhar performed the Adhan by saying, Ashadu Anna Ali and Waliullah. 
They came and they complained to the Holy Prophet, to which he answered, Did you not hear what I said at Ghadir Khum? So these are examples of the special mention of Ashadu an Ali and Waliullah that some of our scholars rely on to say, therefore it is mustahab. No one can say that it is wajib, it is mustahab. Or at least it is permissible. Our early scholars that everybody considers trustworthy, Sheikh al-Saduq and others in the third century, they write in their books, so they mention these ahadith, and then they write in their books that there are other ahadith that are of a similar meaning, but they don't tell us which they are. So here are scholars who are of this view. They say we can safely rely on the fact that there were other ahadith that did not make it to us. But they, we know from the trustworthy scholars of our school that these ahadith existed, and so therefore we can rely on them. Okay, so these are the spe specific or special mentions of the third shahada in the adhan. So, uh, based on these points, is it permissible to say it or not? Generally, unanimously agreed upon in the Shia school that it is permissible. Is it recommended? The crushing majority of the Shia scholars believe, therefore, that it is recommended either to be added to the adhan only as a recommended act, or it is already part of the adhan, but it was not mentioned for all sorts of reasons, okay? The point that I wanted to mention is that the most important part of this is that no one should be thinking or saying, which I will be doing in the next part, the last point that I wanted to make, that this was based on someone introducing this statement. In all of the cases, they, the debate between the scholars is about the trustworthiness, the truthfulness, the meaning of what is to be understood from the narrations. So you're going back in an act of worship to the Holy Prophet and to the Imams, not making something uh, by yourself on your own based on your reason. The debate today, that continues today, and it's not over, but it has raged on much more in the past. Today there is kind of a almost unanimous position, there are a few exceptions, is that does it not cause issues? When we add this to the Adhan, should we not all unite and rally behind a single call to prayer as Muslims? Does this not cause issues? Does it not become problematic? Does it, could it not lead to disunity? So I think the position of those who say it does is clear. I want to argue the other position very quickly. The first point is that there is certainly a matter of identity in this. There's certainly a matter of announcing who we are after, as Shia, after we have been oppressed for so long. Of course, not making it up. If it is established that it is something permissible, then within that realm, after I have been oppressed for centuries, I'm not allowed to divulge my identity for centuries, now I have the opportunity to do so, is it not empowering for me to do so? To state my identity, to proudly say, and this is my label, and I am proudly associating myself with this label of Ashhadu an Ali and Waliullah. That is one. Two, it's supposed and meant for with an educational purpose. When it is raised in this way, people are going to ask questions. When they hear it, will they not say, why is this added? Why are they making a point to say it? Which brings us to the two other points, the two last points, or let's combine them into one big point. In justice today, there's something called restorative justice. 
if you study law, if you study criminal, uh, you know, criminal justice, if you study the philosophy of law, of law, they talk about restorative justice. So harms, damages are done against someone, against the community for a very long time. Then there's a whole debate and a discussion and a process that happens to see how do we restore justice? And sometimes it's impossible. Today, look at you know, what is being revealed about the history of the indigenous people of this land. What, is there any way for you to really restore the justice done, the oppression done against the children who were buried in those schools? No, those people have been gone for hundreds of years. But you still try to do something symbolic so that this doesn't happen again, so that you restore the symbol of justice in that time. This is definitely the case when it comes to Imam Ali alayhi salam. Study Islamic history right from his time and onwards during the Khilafah of Muawiyah. For 80 years, Imam Ali alayhi salam was cursed with a open, explicit la'an at the beginning and at the end of every adhan, iqamah, and official sermon in the country. If you are part of the Islamic world, go back in history and look at the geography of the Islamic world. Look at how big the Islamic lands were. Every Imam of every mosque has to begin and end every sermon with a land of Imam Ali salam. Why? What did he do? Muawiyah wanted the Khilafah and Imam Ali salam said he should not get the Khilafah. That's it. Is there anything else? No, that was the beginning of it. And so Muawiyah would call any Imam anywhere in the Islamic land to his palaces so that they are questioned if the line of Imam Ali is not done. Every book of history talks about this. So this happens for 80 years during that time. And it didn't stop there. We are now still in Safar. We are still very much in the Muharram and, and Safar period. Go back to the texts of the 10th of, of Muharram. What did they tell Imam Hussein salam when he would tell them, why are you killing me? Is there any money that you, uh, I owe you? Is there anything that, is there blood in my neck that you're trying to get back? Avenge a death? Is there an injustice that I have committed against any of you? And the response was, we are killing you out of hatred for your father. Kurhan bi abik. Why did your father attack Quraysh this way in our pre-Islamic days before we entered Islam? This is the revenge. Anyone who understands this, I think would also understand the symbol of saying today, Ashhadu anna aliyan waliullah in the adhan. You understand what happened then, you should understand why it is being added now. Of course, as I said and I repeat, this is a compliment. This is to be added to the fiqhi discussion on whether or not it is permissible and that requires its own discussion. So I'll stop here, inshallah, we can talk about all of this much more in much more detail in, in our discussions.